The Y Curve with Phil Dobby and Roger Hearing. Strikes, rising pay demands, productivity problems. What's happening in the UK workplace? And where are all the workers? Every sector seems to be claiming there's a shortage of labour. Yet unemployment is at an historic low. And wage pressure is stalling hopes of a sharp decline in inflation. So when it comes to filling jobs, where did everyone go? And what's the fix? That's today on The Y Curve, brought to you by Wigmore Associates. The Y curve. So let me give you some numbers to start with, Roger. You'd be disappointed that I didn't, wouldn't you? So in the second Uh, quarter of this year, 75.7% of adults in the UK were employed. Take the three months leading up to the pandemic, and it doesn't sound too different, but 76.6% of us were employed. So we've gone from 76.6 down to 75.7, and there's no sign of that recovering. So we haven't got back to pre-pandemic levels. Some of it is because of choice. Some of it's because of lack of work. You know, the mismatch between jobs and skills and health is a is a factor in all of this as well. Well, there's an awful lot who are saying that they are on long COVID or, or the something of that order that are keeping them out of the workforce altogether. And yet it seems quite easy. They just have to get back to work. I mean, that's what Priti Patel was saying earlier this year, that, you know, that uh, 20% of the workforce are economically inactive. That's a great expression, isn't it, to describe yourself economically inactive? Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's, a, it's an aspiration, really, isn't it? For you, maybe. For the future. <laughs> to be economically inactive. Well, I mean, some people would say, well, another word is you're just useless. Uh, but, uh, you know, she wants to get that 20%, which is, you know, saying 76.6%. So, I mean, she's saying, well, most of that is, is is people who could get back to work, the 20%. So why are they not doing it? That's the question, isn't it? Well, uh, possibly because Pudi Patel wants them to, and so they're being stubborn yeah, now. Yeah, it has to, has to be said. It's one of the good rules, I should think, not to go in the opposite direction. But <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, it is an interesting one, because also I think there's a, a sense, and, and I'm getting this in, in other people I've spoken to and people I've interviewed, that, that there's a feeling that people are have changed their attitude to work. Mm. That, that as a general thing, right across the Western world, people are less committed somehow. Now, I mean, that's pretty intangible. But if that is part of what's going on, people are saying, well, I can get by. Maybe I don't need the high salary. Uh, maybe I like the fact that employers are desperate to have me. I mean, there are lots of factors. But that sounds in. like just a transitional thing that, you know, there'll be people who were towards the end of their working life. And I know people like that who decide I am unfortunately not one of them I've got to keep on working to the bitter end possibly to the day I die but there are people who go yeah, yeah. Well, it's all those gambling debts I mean it's all, one of, those all things of that you, you know about. and yeah. 14 yeah. Yeah. former yeah. wives all those things but there's oh, yeah. um, you know and all the kids that no one knows about but the um, yeah you, you you sort of like get to the stage where you think well okay I've only got a few more years left uh, of working life I might as well leave a bit earlier and yeah not have quite such a good retirement but that's a transitory thing isn't it because the next generation won't have that luxury because they don't, you know, they haven't got the assets that people of our generation have got, for example. Uh, well, well you, you'd think you'd think that, but I have to say, there's lots of interesting phenomena out there. There's the lazy girls, you heard of this? No. Uh, people, young girls, theoretically, of their early 20s, who are just not that bothered about the work. They'll do just enough to get by. It's a, become a trend, a thing on Instagram, all sorts of places. There's all this kind of, what do they call it, you know, uh, leaving without almost leaving the job, uh, quiet quitting, yeah. that kind of thing. These trends are not just in the older population, they're in the younger one as no, well. No, but it's not going to last long, is it? I mean, at that point, if you're only just doing the job, eventually you'll get found out, you'll lose that job. And then, you know, just fundamental things like eating, having shelter, you know, you have to work for those things. So I wonder whether, you know, this is just a period we're going through. Anyway, we'll talk about it today. Look, if you were a part of the Great Resignation, or perhaps you'd like to be, but you can't afford it just yet. 
Um, if you'd like to quiet quit, perhaps, yeah, but need the resources. Not. I don't know as we condone that. But look, if you are planning for your retirement, and it, that, that is important, obviously, for just about everyone, uh, and you want to sort out what happens to your assets uh, up to your retirement, or maybe beyond, as you go beyond retirement, you know, that next phase in life, which we call death, uh, who's who's going to acquire your wealth? You're on a grim on a grim mode today. today I am a bit, aren't I? Uh, well, let's talk about happier times. Then maybe you're getting, you know, you're wanting to go on a big holiday, or you want a holiday home or you want an extension in your house or you're going through midlife crisis and you need a new car, you know, a flashy sports car, whatever it is, if you need help with your finances, ensuring that you're investing wisely and getting the best possible returns and not paying more than you have to to the tax office, God bless them, then you need to get in touch with Wigmore Associates at wigmore-associates.co.uk. They are a boutique wealth management company who are also proud supporters of the YCAV. So they've got fantastic taste as well. And you can give them a call on 0207 224 Tell them Phil and Roger sent you and they'll mm. look after you. No quiet they quitting going on there. They are conscientious. Absolutely not. They are productivity they are no- Noses to the grindstone and all that, whatever it is. <laughs> anyway, let's talk about work and what work means and what work should mean and how we get people back to work. We're going to speak now to Naomi Clayton. She's Deputy Director of Research and Development at the Learning and Work Institute. So, Naomi, the figures I'm looking at from the Office of National Statistics, I mean... Unemployment is very low, isn't it? The issue is that almost 8.7 million people aged 16 to 64 are, and we'll just use that term, economically inactive. And that is almost 4% higher than the period leading up to the to the pandemic. So why have so many people become economically inactive, do you think? So I think it's, uh, for, you know, people are continuing to leave the labour market for a variety of reasons, um, but we have seen a, a large increase in um, people becoming economically inactive during the pandemic, and and that's resulted in uh, a, a smaller workforce. We estimate that the the workforce is around one million smaller than if pre-pandemic trends had continued. Wow. Um, and, and like I said, people are continuing to leave the labour market for a variety of reasons. During the the, the pandemic and the, the various lockdowns, we saw an increase in people taking uh, early retirement. But I think one of the most significant trends that we've seen of late is the increase in people who are who are um, not working and not available to work because they are long-term sick. Is that directly related to COVID? I mean, are we saying essentially it's a long COVID group that, that's doing that? I think that may be part of it. It may also um, relate to um, NHS waiting lists. We've also seen a big rise in uh, the number of people with mental health uh, conditions too. So overall, um, there's around half a million more people who are economically inactive due to long-term sickness since 2019. A large part of that is due to increase with of people with mental health conditions. So do you think this is going to be a long-term trend? So if we take long COVID, for example, I've got numbers here again from the ONS reckoning that 1.9 million people living in private households in the UK right now, that's 2.9% of the population, were experiencing self-reported long COVID. That is symptoms that have lasted more than four weeks after they were first confirmed of having COVID. 
that's still quite a high percentage, isn't it? But it is down on, you know, where we were late last year, for example. So even though it seems like a horrendously large number, it's coming down slowly. And I guess if there were people facing increased mental health issues because they were suffering through lockdown, reappraising your life and all that sort of stuff, which, of course, would impact also, you know, your attitude towards work. I wonder whether, you know, even though some of these things are taking a long time to change, we'll find that they are trends that are going to slowly dissipate. Or is this with us for the long term, do you think? I think part of this is about long term trends. And in part, it relates to the ageing kind of population and workforce. So if we look at the statistics, we can see that more people who are both in work and out of work are reporting having long term health conditions. And I think that relates to some of the the wider trends around the kind of ageing population. So I I do think, um, you know, some of these trends that we're, we're seeing will persist over the longer term. That, that's really interesting because that suggests, I guess, that employers are now going to have to calculate that they have a smaller pool of people to draw from. I mean, we do hear all the time, Naomi, as you know, of employers saying, oh, we can't get enough people to fill our, uh, to work in our cafes and our restaurants and our shops anyway. But have they simply got to take this on board and say, look, this is the new reality? I think employers do need to look at their recruitment strategies and and job design so that they're doing as much as possible to address uh, the the labor shortages that that many employers are uh, experiencing and make sure that that more people are able to stay in work too because uh, that's you know recruitment is a big issue but job retention is is just as important and that gets down a lot of that gets down to pay doesn't it i mean if you are nearing the end of your working life and you don't feel as though you're getting the uh that your, your just rewards i mean that because you're not getting paid enough or you've seen the uh in, in real terms you've seen your pay decline that is what's going to you know make you choose i'm going to get out of the workforce now isn't it and so keeping up with people's pay is becoming a problem. And of course, people's expectations are going to rise, which has been part of the inflation problem, uh, if there's a shortage of workers. I think that's part of it. Pay is obviously a, a big consideration for, for people when they're thinking about whether they stay, particularly amongst this kind of over over 50s group, some of which who have, who have taken right. early retirement. But you think there's more to it than that? But yes, absolutely. I think one of the, the big um uh, kind of barriers for particularly for um, people who who may have kind of caring responsibilities is the lack of flexible job opportunities. So we know a big consideration for um, for people who are who are over uh, fifty who have left the labour market. Big consideration for them when they're thinking about and kind of weighing up whether they kind of look for for work is around the kind of flexibility of job uh, opportunities. So thinking about kind of flexibility in terms of location, in terms of hours, so that it's easier to to, to kind of juggle those those wider kind of responsibilities and, and caring responsibilities that many people have. But 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 Naomi, that seems odd in a way. And part of the whole issue is is the main incentive, I guess, for most people to work. And some of us are lucky enough to do jobs we we do because partly we enjoyed them. But a lot of people do it because they need the money. Now that surely hasn't changed. How can people make these kind of calculations which you're talking about 
uh, where money isn't the central issue? Is it just that people now are perhaps more relaxed about not being paid that well? I think money and, and pay is still a central issue. I think um, there are there are kind of a range of things that affect people's ability to work. And I think alongside things like pay, the availability of flexible job opportunities is is really important. And does that come because we got used to that because of post-COVID, you know, the opportunity to, to work from home? A lot of employers, of course, are trying to, you know, claw back on that now and saying, well, you've got to be in the office, you know, at least three or four days a week. And, you know, there's that, there's that battle going on, isn't there, between employers and workers and to just how much time you need, need to spend in, uh, in in the office. So is that have we got a taste for flexibility now because of COVID and, and people don't want to step back from that? Is that what's happening? I think the increase in remote working has brought with it a lot of advantages for workers, particularly those who are kind of, you know, have wider kind of caring responsibilities. I think there are probably more people now because of the ageing population who have caring responsibilities for parents and and older people. You know, flexibility, uh, you know, in in terms of, of work is important from that perspective. I think, you know, the the move to hybrid working, I think many employers are still figuring out how to make hybrid working work best and most effectively, Um, but it has brought with it, you know, a sense of the opportunity that that kind of that sort of flexible working brings with it. Is there is there not, however, a kind of cultural thing going on here, Amy, which is a sense that work has a different place in our lives, perhaps, than it did pre-COVID? I mean, you hear all these terms like uh, lazy girls, a sort of theme of, of, of women in their 20s, really not caring too much about what the work they're doing, just doing enough. You heard the quiet quitting has been a big phenomenon. There's the great resignation, a sense that, that actually work really is changed. It, it's something you have to do, perhaps, to get along with a bit of money, but perhaps not as important as it once I'm, was. I'm, You know, there are kind of reports around kind of quiet quitting and, and people's attitudes to work. I'm I'm not sure how significant. I mean, there have been changes in uh, kind of job satisfaction, although there still is relatively high levels of, of job satisfaction. Um, and, and we know kind of meaningful work really matters. I'm not I'm not sure um that the kind of issues related to the kind of need for things like more flexible working relate necessarily to people's attitudes towards work. It's more about how we create a, a, an environment that allows and enables more people to work, but which becomes ever more important with the kind of labour shortages, labour shortages that employers are currently facing and are likely to continue into the future. Well, Roger quite quit years ago and frankly, no one really noticed the difference, to be honest with you. But uh, look, what, I wonder whether there's a, a mismatch between, you know, people who are looking for jobs and what the jobs are that are available. So I'm looking at some numbers for the first uh, couple of quarters of this year from the Office for National Statistics. The number of people who were economically inactive uh, and then decided that they would get back into the workforce. So we have 486,000 going from being economically inactive to being employed. 
but we have 488,000, that's more, going from being economically inactive to basically unemployed, so signing on the dole. So they've made the decision they want to get back in the workforce, but more than half of them haven't been able to find a job, having made that call. Which sort of suggests, you know, when we're told that the, you know, unemployment is a, you know, close to an all-time low, that they'd find it fairly easy to get a job. But obviously, most of them are not, which would mean that, you know, they've got the wrong skill set, the wrong sorts of jobs are available for them. Yeah, and and that kind of mismatch, I think, will come into into play in a variety of ways. I think there is um, a degree of of skills mismatch, and um, we need to look at how we can. Uh, increase access to training opportunities to enable people to kind of reskill and and upskill in order to access kind of good job opportunities. We also need to look at kind of wider infrastructure, including you know transport and and childcare, um, for instance, which would also enable people um, to to access more jobs and have more choice about which jobs um, they might go for uh, within uh, the labour market. Not sure how much retraining when you're over 50 is going to work, though. It's the one thing we're missing here. What you're talking about there is, is, you know, people to fill these gaps. But are the gaps there, in part at least, because things like Brexit, where we, we lost a lot of workers who might fill them from Europe, and we've perhaps been not as quick to get more people in in the right sort of categories from outside. In a sense, the whole point about having an elderly or old getting older workforce is you need to have people in there. We don't have as many young people around. Is the answer, in fact, simply filling a lot of these jobs with people from outside? We, and, and actually, when you look at um, the migration figures, um, you know, non-EU migration has actually been really supporting the employment recovery in this country. But I think given the kind of longer term changes in in the labour market and the um, kind of ageing population and the fact that, you know, the, the, the size of the workforce is set to, to kind of shrink relative to our total population. We need to d- be doing more to close some of the gaps that we see in terms of groups of people uh, who are less likely to work and uh, in terms of areas where there are kind of high levels of, of unemployment and, and economic inactivity. Um, so, for instance, you know, at the moment, um, we've got a, a large disability employment gap if we were to close that gap, it would mean an extra 2.4 million more people in work. Now, of course, not all of those people can work and are, are, are available uh, to work, but there are some long-term participation gaps in this country that we feel that we can be doing more uh, to close, which would help to address some of the the labour shortages uh, that are likely to to kind of continue and persist uh, into the future unless we do more to support people uh, to find and stay in work. Well, Priti Patel said, of course, you know, that uh, not that long ago, 20% of the workforce is economically inactive. And if we can just get them back to work, uh, then we wouldn't need to change any immigration rules in this country. Uh, Of course, you know, I mean, it's a crazy thing to say because out of that 20%, a lot of those inactive people just can't work. Uh, so she's making something sound very simple when it when it's not for a lot of the reasons we're, we're, we're 
explore today. But even if you just chipped away at a few percent, uh, I mean, that would make a, a massive difference, wouldn't it, to the economic output of the country? And it's a, it's a bit of a double whammy, isn't it? Because the moment you take someone who's economically inactive or someone who's unemployed and you give them a job, obviously not paying them any benefits and you're benefiting from the their productive capacity as well. So it sounds like a no-brainer to do it, but the question is, why is it, I guess, why is it not happening? And if it's such a, a focus of government policy, what exactly are they doing to make that happen? Mm. Statistics show that there are 1.7 million economically inactive people who want to work. Um, so I think we can be doing more to support those people uh, to, to find work. So at the moment, only one in 10 out of work disabled people or older people get help to find work each year. Um, so, you know, we could do more to to widen the kind of eligibility of existing employment support programmes so that make more people get help to find work. Um, I've talked a bit about the kind of the investment in social infrastructure that's needed. So investment in childcare and uh, skills and employment uh, support and the role of, of, of employers in terms of their recruitment practices, um, kind of tackling discrimination and looking at kind of job design to help more people stay in work. Na- Naomi, let me put on a hat that Phil, I know, likes to put on me from time to time, which is a right wing hat. Um, it doesn't fit <laughs> me very well. But she did mention Pretty Patel. I mean, there are people out there who say, and I don't I don't necessarily support this, that one part of the reason is it's too easy not to work, that, that our system is geared in such a way that now uh, the incentive to, to, to go out and get work as opposed to get benefits is not as big as it should be, that gap. And that is part of the reason people aren't coming back into the workforce. Is there any truth in that? I think it's it's difficult to make a, a, a kind of sound argument in that regard, given that, you know, what's happened with benefits over time and the fact that, that actually benefit levels are far lower than they were previously and you know it's contributed to kind of large rises in 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 poverty in in the UK so you know i think the emphasis and the focus really should be on supporting employers to look at as i've already said to to look at their kind of recruitment strategies and and job design uh, to make it easier for more people to to find and and stay in work. What I find curious, though, is that it seems to not be getting any better. So you might have thought, well, we would be, you know, we're adjusting to a post-pandemic world. Everything, all the cards were thrown in the air. They've landed all over the place. And now we're trying to pick them back up and and, and return to some sort of normality. And you'd be thinking, well, we would be surely getting close to the end of that now. So some of those strange patterns of behavior that we've seen would be starting to correct themselves. And yet on this whole thing about moving from being employed to being economically inactive, that number's increasing. So the first couple of quarters, again, you know, using these numbers, there's a very useful chart from the ONS showing the flow of traffic from employed to unemployed to economically inactive. The net flow from employment to economically inactive in the first couple of quarters is 103,000. So you've got 589,000 people going from employment to being economically inactive versus 486 going from being inactive to being employed. So the net flow is 103,000 in that direction of becoming economically inactive. And this isn't just age 
aging because this is people aged between 16 to 64. So they're still of working age. So it seems to be getting worse. And it can't be just COVID. I mean, we're in theory past that point. And yes, there is long COVID, but the numbers getting COVID now are not greater than they were a year mm. or so ago. Yeah. And, and there were questions around the degree to which long COVID is contributing versus kind of NHS waiting lists versus kind of mental ill health. And, and we are we are likely to see some of those trends continue in part because of the ageing workforce. So, you know, there will be more people with um, long term health conditions and multiple um, health conditions as the population in, in general ages. But yes, certainly the, the kind of latest figures show that, um, you know, the employment rate recovery in the UK remains the, the slowest in the G7. Um, and, you know, the, the, the UK was the only OECD member country except for Switzerland to see a sustained rise in economic inactivity across 2021, 2022. And obviously, the most recent um, figures show that economic inactivity haven't fallen slightly is starting to rise uh, again. So a lot of what we're talking about actually relates to some of the kind of long term challenges in in the economy which relate in part to um the, the aging kind of population and really kind of point towards us needing to do more to address some of those kind of long-term participation yeah well, the good news is, of course, now Pretty Patel has said that, you know, we're going to get all those economically inactive people back into the workforce. The government's obviously got a plan for how that's going to that's going to happen. So that's the excellent news. And also, obviously, within that, they will be covering the fact that the level of uh, uh, employment, uh, active employment varies enormously by regions. So obviously, it's uh, the number of people economically inactive in the southeast is far less than those people living in uh, Yorkshire and Humberside, for, for example. So as part of the levelling up agenda, uh, we assume that that's going to be part of... I'm being cynical here, aren't I? But that's going to be part of You're the government. You're never cynical. You're never cynical. <laughs> this is all genuine. This is going to be part of the government's plan as well. But, I mean, that regional variation says something else as well, doesn't it? Uh, it's getting worse up north than it is in the southeast. Yeah, and, and for a long time, we've seen significant um, disparities across the country in terms of, of employment. Um and you know, different parts of the country were affected differently um, in, during the the pandemic uh, in terms of the kind of rises of in kind of economic inactivity. When we look at rates of long term of of economic inactivity due to long term sickness, we can see that really quite wide variation again. So, you know, in parts of Surrey, less than one in a hundred people will be um, economically inactive due to long-term sickness, whereas in parts of Liverpool, it will be kind of more than one in 10. So, you know, there is really quite significant variation in in employment and, and kind of rates of economic activity across the country. Um, and, and some of that does relate to the kind of long-term sickness uh, and, and kind of disability trends that we've been 
talking about. Yes, there's a more fundamental social question about why would that be the case? Why would there be so much variation? Which, which, which is which goes right across the board, of course. And 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 Naomi, as we sort of draw this this discussion to a close, do you detect any signs that this is improving? Do you do you de- detect? I mean, we've heard the stats don't necessarily suggest that, but going forward five years, perhaps ten years, do you think what's going on now will pull people back into the workforce? That whether it's higher wages or better training or any of these things, are we going to see a move in a positive direction? Or, or is this part of a longer trend, which is actually seeing that there will be fewer people working? You know, I mean, what's what's better? Full employment? Is that a an aspiration that we have to give away now? Should we be focusing on better productivity for those people who are working as we have more automation? And do we have to accept? This is something that's been talked about for decades, you know, that perhaps machines are going to take over. We're going to see more artificial intelligence, for example, and the number of people in the workforce is going to be less Therefore, there's going to be a mismatch. There's going to be skills that people have that are no longer required. And we have to develop public policy around how we keep those people occupied because it may not be a job that's going to keep them occupied during the day. I, I think we, we do need to maintain a focus on increasing employment and that we should have a higher ambition around full employment and getting more people into work and into good jobs too um because we know that you know good quality employment good quality work can have can be hugely beneficial for a whole variety of of reasons including you know people's health and their mental health um their self-worth yeah yeah um and it will obviously have um uh there'll be big kind of economic gains to that too um so i don't think we should lose sight of that ambition and I, I think we should increase our ambition around full employment i think there are some positive signs around kind of the work that government is doing to better integrate um employment support and health services for instance but there's more that we can do and i think uh, you know there are lots of employers who who have and are changing their kind of business models and recruitment practices but again i think you know there's more that we can do to to work and and encourage more employers and, and particularly smaller employers to adopt kind of good um employment and recruitment uh, practices. So there are some positive signs, but there's, mm. there's lots more to do. Yeah, there is, isn't there? And sadly, it looks like at the moment things are heading in the wrong direction. So we'll see if we can turn it around and whether we can turn it around in the short term. But as you know, the, the big question is how long is this going to be around for? Anyway, we'll watch and see. Good talk. Anyway, thanks for coming and joining us today. Thanks very Thank much you. indeed, Naomi. Cheers. Thank you. Bye. Yeah, I just, you know what? I'm I'm not convinced though that we're ever going to reach full employment again. I think the the, the the you know there's there's a coincidence that we had this downturn because of the pandemic, which was just adding to a trend that we were starting to see fewer jobs. And and I'm not convinced that we are going to reach full employment again. But what's- uh, I think I think there is this culture thing. I think there in the background there is this feeling in certain areas that you know that the impulse to go back to work to to make work the big thing in your life is is somewhat gone in some yeah. areas. Definitely. But these uh, quitters I'm, i would quite like to see them lose their job you know if you are if you are employed <laughs> i mean commit to it for god's sake if you're going to quiet quit just completely quit yes. don't take the money phil says quit loudly quit loudly or exactly don't quit that's the message today now look uh, well, someone who won't quit let's talk about someone who isn't yes. quitting that's what we need to talk about <laughs> our brains we know who we're talking about that, don't we? we both had the same I segue do. at the same time donald trump is he going to be the next president yes. of the united states we've got a choice haven't we are we going to have a president who's uh, going to be in a nursing home or are we going to have a president who's 
is in jail. Take your pick. It's it's going to be a very interesting. The most powerful country in the world is facing a year. It has had is having a year coming up that they have no idea how they're going to come out of it because none of the constitutional elements that should work seem to be working. And there's great fear that this could really go very, very badly wrong. You have extremely hard views on both sides and a sense that there is very little in the middle. I've read various things saying, oh, America always resets. It manages to find a way mm. around it. Frankly, I and many others can't see a way out of no. this one. And, and Donald Trump, I mean, there will be people listening who love him. Uh, perhaps not many listening to this podcast, but there are. Mm, surprising, <laughs> but there might be, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I met Listen, in America. We're inclusive. We're inclusive. People who seem like normal people who were Trump supporters. And it's like a cult this man has developed for himself. Mm. And that is the, you know, and that then that becomes a danger. If you can build a cult-like following yeah. in the name of democracy, then democracy is dead, isn't it? If that's what it comes and, to. And, and, and the campaign hasn't even begun, yet it feels it has. Yeah. Uh, we're moving into the primary season now already in, in the Republican camp. We're going to see a very, very difficult time. And I think we need to find out what's at stake, what the Constitution says about all this and what ways people see of coming out of it with America still uh, a country that one, most in people feel internationally is a reasonable partner. That's a big yeah, issue. absolutely. What is going to happen to America? That's the fundamental question next week on The Why Curve. Uh, brought to you by Wigmore Associates. We'll see you then. Thanks for listening. Bye. The Why Curve.